Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. When congressional leaders grilled social media executives last year about spreading misinformation on the 2020 election and COVID-19, most of the heat was on Facebook, Twitter, and the search engine Google. Our guest, business writer Mark Bergen, says far less attention is focused on YouTube, the video-sharing platform which last year earned $28 billion in ad revenue and which has over 2 billion viewers around the world. Bergen's new book tells the story of YouTube's founding in 2005 on the simple idea of letting everyone share videos on the Internet for free, and he describes the company's chaotic growth into a business giant. It's a platform that's allowed a nine-year-old boy, whose videos began appearing when he was three, to become a multimillionaire with his own toy and clothing brands. It's also given enormous exposure to Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists. Bergen writes that YouTube has ushered in a world of abundant content and creativity, of influencers and online hustlers, of information overload and endless culture wars. Mark Bergen writes for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Businessweek and previously reported on technology and media for Recode and Ad Age. He covered business and economics from India, writing for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications. His new book is Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Mark Bergen, welcome to Fresh Air. Let's begin with YouTube's origin. In 2005, this was when there were hundreds of internet startups spawning everywhere, and most didn't take off. Tell us about the founding of YouTube, what its originators wanted to do. Yeah, this was a a wave, a revolutionary wave of what we called user-generated content on the internet. So not just websites where people would go and and scroll and and read, but they could actually participate. And so you had Blogger around that that same time, Flickr, the photo-sharing app. Facebook was formed in 2004. And then months later, there were three uh, friends who had worked at PayPal uh, that had got together. They had this idea they wanted to do something on video. Video flip cameras were just becoming popular. Video was beginning to appear on the internet, uh, but it was still very difficult to share and expensive and cumbersome. And so they, in early 2005, they began working on this this site. Uh, There wasn't a lot of clarity and sense that people would be posting amateur content or homemade videos, let alone that that users and viewers would want to watch that. Um, So they really stumbled upon this success by building a service that was pretty simple to use. Early on, it had that iconic triangular play button. It was able to embed in different websites. And once it took off uh, with a lot of uh, early creators, what we call now creators, experimenting with it, it really hasn't slowed down since. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, the idea is, I mean, the, the slogan was broadcast yourself. Anybody could upload anything for free, right? Yeah, I it, it, it think this was still a, a, a pretty novel idea and part of this um, Silicon Valley firm belief that information should be free and be accessible uh, and broadcast and video 
should be free and accessible and eventually will be. Uh, and YouTube was one of many, uh, but certainly became the early on uh, leapfrog around its competitors in part because it was so accessible and, and easy to use. You know, the founders talked about it in emails. This is something that they talked about how their mom should be able to use. And I think um, to their credit, that's one of the reasons for its success. Right. So so anybody could post anything. And who knew that like amateur videos would get an audience? But one of the things that they did early on was they knew that they wanted to find high-quality stuff and promote it. And so they created a group of people they called Cool Hunters. Uh, what was their mission? So at one point, there was a team of, they called themselves community managers. Uh, they sometimes called themselves editors. And they would pick uh, the videos that would appear on the homepage. Um, and they had different categories like sports and music and comedy. And, and some of it was sort of tapping into these early viral video hits. Uh, and they were also like sifting through. I mean, one of them compared it to uh, like looking through a record bin, right? Trying to go back and, and find these hidden gems um, because this is when YouTube was starting to get this influx of, of material from, from all around the world. Uh, and, and they hadn't built this algorithmic system of software to be able to get viewers in front of the videos that they might want to watch. Uh, and so this was a team that was effectively doing what we think of as an editorial role now of like managing a website homepage like the New York Times. Uh, and in an integral part, they were one of the first people at YouTube to actually reach out to the people that were broadcasting and uploading videos and develop a relationship with. Um, you know, at the time, it was sort of your if you were early on experimenting with YouTube, you didn't really have a connection. There wasn't a support line you could call or an email address, right, to get in touch with the company. And so they were the first to build these relationships, which uh, became very vital. And, and then, you know, years later, as the platform grew, much more difficult to manage. Right. And, you know, they they brought us Justin Bieber, right? They, he was discovered by them and promoted by YouTube. And, boy, took off, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, actually, Bieber was, incidentally, they, they found his video, and he was singing a cover. Uh, his mom was trying to, to get it on the YouTube homepage. You, uh, Justin Bieber was discovered in 2008 by a record executive because of his popularity on YouTube and, and his career launched from there. It's interesting to see, as this developed, what kinds of videos, um, you know, amateur videos really took off. One of them was box opening, people opening a box of a new product and people seeing it. Uh, and, you know, I thought we'd listen to a clip from one of the, this is a kind of a, a, a youngster who was a star named Ryan Kaji. Am I saying that right? Uh, That's right. Yeah. He, he did box opening videos of toys uh, that his parents submitted when he, it started when he was just three years old. Um, one of his, you can look it up, one of them has... Um, a billion views now, uh, but this is an early one, uh, an unboxing video where his his mom takes him to Target, lets him pick out a toy, and he picks uh, a Lego train. And what we'll hear here is just a bit of this video of him opening the box with his mom's encouragement. Open it. I I I see a, a yellow thing. What yellow thing? Let's check That's it out. My yellow thing. It's, I see a white thing. Okay, take it out. We're I white. think it's a dog. Really? Oh. Uh, mm. Open it. Let's see. And that's it. I mean, uh, <laughs> adorable little kid, but boy, what, what was the appeal of unboxing videos? 
Uh, Ryan is a really fascinating example. So he's gone on to have a, a tremendously successful career and, and effectively build an entire enter- entertainment juggernaut around his his YouTube channels. Uh, he w- I, the one thing he's very charismatic on on screen, and it is, I believe since he was three years old, he's been appearing in sort of a natural and like very comfortable and in, in, in front of and guileless in front of the camera. Uh, the unboxing videos actually ber- began on YouTube. Uh, with tech products, with iPhones. So the the iPhone came out in 2007. A lot of the early reviewers would get these iPhones and these models before anyone else could have them. And it was this, you know, beyond just if you want to leave a review of your phone, typically in in a newspaper or a blog, a video is a much more illustrative way to to demonstrate, oh, here's this cool new gadget. Uh, And so that was where they began. And, And I talked to some of the early... YouTubers who were worked in that tech space, and they're like, well, we, we discovered when we were unboxing the videos, people actually wanted to watch them. They wanted to, to experience what it's like to take that new shiny product outside of a box. Uh, these were products that maybe they, they wanted, they aspired to purchase one day. And you saw that just transfer to toys um, around 2011, 2012. Uh, and toy unboxing as like a, as a psychological phenomenon, as a childhood development phenomenon, is really underexamined. There are theories about sort of mirror neurons and and what kind of fires off in our brain when we see someone perform an act that we want to do. And in you know Ryan Kaji at early his early videos, he's not just playing with one toy; often it's dozens of toys. Uh, and and this is something where kids clearly uh, there was an, an appeal to watching this. He, you know, he was also a really iconic example. Um, he's Asian American. He's someone who didn't even attempt to go through, you know, conventional Hollywood or TV. This is something that YouTube prided itself on was it, it didn't have gatekeepers. There's no producer or agent that determines whether or not Ryan is popular. It is his mom uploading the videos and then viewers are watching. Um, and that's part of YouTube's magic. YouTube was founded in 2005 by three guys, mostly refugees from PayPal. Uh, Then Google acquired the company in 2006 for $1.65 billion. They had not turned to profit yet, right? (laughs) Why why did Google do this? I think one major reason is that YouTube was also a very powerful, even then, um, uh, search service. It was YouTube. Google is a search company, and it is the world's biggest search engine. That is how the the company thinks of itself. Is sort of it wants to be the uh, primary place where people are searching on on the internet. And they saw YouTube as this viable threat, not just of oh, here's this uh, new phenomenon of online video, and, and Google was well aware that that video was coming to the internet. Uh, but here is this powerful search engine that people are going on and, and looking not just for funny, amusing cat videos, uh, but instructions, how-to videos, uh, looking for for commercial, like looking up uh, things about, you know, things they might want to buy and purchase. So that was a major reason um, why uh, YouTube was attractive to Google. Google actually at the time had a competing service called Google Video uh, that for a variety of reasons struggled to compete with YouTube. Um, there's sort of a saying in Silicon Valley uh, you either build it or you buy it. Um, and <laughs> Google had just gone public in in 2004, was flush with cash from its from its search advertising business, and so went out and bought it. And, and 1.6 billion at the time uh, was an eye popping number. Uh, you know, 
years later, Facebook would go out and buy a company like WhatsApp for, for almost $20 billion. Um, so, you know, I think history can look back and see, as certainly financially, it was an incredibly savvy purchase for Google. So, so they figured out a way to put ads on, on videos and eventually started paying the creators, right? Yes, YouTube was actually remarkably early in that. Uh, 2007 is when they started uh, sharing out revenue with uh, broadcasters. And in a small group at that point, around 30 or so uh, popular channels. Uh, fast forward to about 2011, 2012, YouTube decides oh, this is something where we want to, you know, the company sort of really believes and they have this, this expression I talk about in the book, like a level playing field. They saw themselves as uh, a democratizing force in the world, right? You're going you're to put someone, an amateur, on the same level as a cable news host, right? Or someone who's making how-to beauty makeup videos. You're going to be just as important as a, as a fashion star. Uh, the Arab Spring was around this time, right? Like this was YouTube was sort of documenting um, revolutions in a way that cable and television was not. Uh, and so they opened up the platform to not just have anyone broadcast themselves, but to make money from the commercials that run on and, and before the videos. In, in deciding what videos to promote, um, they used to have this group of people that they called the cool hunters that would look for video content to see what was, was going to display on the homepage. But eventually they, they began to rely more and more on math, on algorithms, right, to, to decide what would come up next. And they develop a system f for recommending videos. If you watched a video, the algorithm would decide what to offer to you next. What was the idea here? The idea was to drive people to the videos that they want to see. I think this was a, a uh, at the time YouTube was kind of struggling with um, what we will call clickbait, right? Where sometimes they were um, the the videos would draw in viewers with an alluring title or the the thumbnail, the like the still image on on the homepage. Uh, people would click in and then immediately leave, be disappointed by what they were getting. Sometimes they were uh, deceptive titles, um, and so the struggle for the the YouTube with its algorithms early on was to how are we going to tailor a video that's just made for you and, and continue like keeps you engaged watching through the entire video um, and clicking more. And so they made this very significant change in, in 2012 to switch their ranking system uh, for recommendations and for search to prioritize videos that can keep people uh, on the watchings for as long as possible. It's called watch time. Um, and that became the kind of gold standard for the company going forward. Right. And, and of course, one of the things this, that this led to, and this has drawn a lot of criticism, is that if you, you know, if you watch a video about some interest of yours, you're going to get, and you finish it, you're going to get another video about that interest. And that's, you know, if it's chess or gardening, that's all benign and fine. If you've if you've taken an interest in some conspiratorial theory about how the election was stolen and you watch that and maybe you're a little curious, maybe a little skeptical, but then you get another one which reinforces it and maybe is a little more extreme and then you get another one and another one, over time you think, gosh, this must be true. So many people believe this. Look at all this evidence. Um, you, you write about somebody within Google, a guy named Matthew Menjerink, who raised concerns that people were simply having their own – beliefs reinforced, and particularly if they were, you know, racist or you know, homophobic or, or 
you know, based on some conspiracy theory that this was troubling. Um, I, he, he raised this within the company. What did the company, how did they respond? Yeah, this was a concern, and, and, and he joined in, in 2015, um, that, that people were starting to see, and I think two things were happening. One was they, that YouTube's algorithm had become uh, exceptionally good uh, and, and also a, a bit opaque, just the way that the, the machine learning system worked. It was sort of hard. The idea was that the, the software could sort of identify patterns that even the people coding it couldn't see. Uh, and it became very pow- powerful in in uh, optimizing towards their goal and what, uh, getting people to watch more and watch longer. Uh, so he was one of several people in, in the company that I spoke to that raised concerns. And, and the chief one was, you know, we are – there are videos that, that don't necessarily break our rules. YouTube did have rules in place about hate speech and, and harassment. Um, they were relatively lax and the company has, has, has changed them uh, – dramatically since since 2015 but at the time you know it was if you're a lot of youtube creators kind of learned to go right up to the line uh and the argument was from from several people was why are why don't we not recommend that to viewers um because i think people inside the company recommend uh, recognize that in a way they youtube was programming although they don't see themselves as a traditional media programmer but their algorithms are programming by the way that they recommend viewers' footage. Uh, this was met with uh, a couple different concerns f- that I've heard from from multiple people that, that uh, raised this in the, over the time. One was a, a legal concern. So, you know, YouTube has certain protections uh, that I mean it's not liable for the content uh, because it's under the U.S. law and, and elsewhere. And the company was incredibly cautious uh, about anything that could change that liability. Uh, the second one is just sort of YouTube and its parent company, Google, has this uh, very strong belief um, that the audience uh, is king, was the expression inside YouTube. Um, they sort of believe that, oh, the audience was the one dictating uh, what to watch and what's popular. Uh, and we don't here sitting in, in Northern California with our biases uh, we don't want to put our thumb on the scale in any way, and so it was sort of it was the response was actually this proposal is ungoogly. Wow, you know it's interesting because I mean it would be one thing if you were like censoring or or deleting videos that that you disagreed with, but what we're really talking about here is what gets recommended to somebody after they've finished a video, and so that's a you know it's a matter of discretion. Um, and, and at one point, I think somebody was talking about, well, maybe if someone, you know, says things that are racist or, or, or questioning the Holocaust, that maybe the next video is one which offers some historical context from, a, from an authoritative source. Was it felt that that's violating the verdict of, of audience approval or something? I th- my understanding is that, you know, YouTube tries to – there's an expression that they have, which is they, like everything they do has to be at scale, which effectively means like if – Every decision they make has to work consistently for for every viewer and for every creator across the globe, uh, and and so you know YouTube is not just in English, right? It is it is in sort of every language. Uh, it is in, in every market, and so there are certainly high profile cases um, like Holocaust denial, which for a long time was was permitted on on the platform and no longer is. Uh, but there are also, in, like another example would be in India about conversations about caste. Uh, and I think the company was very reluctant to sort of weigh in, oh, how are we 
you know, not how we determine basically where to draw a line there as far as what's permitted, but then uh, that's difficult. But then how do we even, you know, we don't want to necessarily suggest particular videos uh, and, and impose our philosophy. That I think that the idea was that there was this was a big platform. We have drawn lines in the sand uh, in certain places as far as what's acceptable uh, legally and what's acceptable according to our community standards. And, and anything else felt sort of interventionist in a way that the company for a long time uh, avoided doing in, until they were forced to do so. We need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Mark Bergen. He writes for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Businessweek. His new book is Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. He'll be back to talk more after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with Mark Bergen, who's covered business, media, and technology for years and now writes for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Businessweek. His new book is A Colorful History of YouTube, the video-sharing platform that's now so large it uploads about 500 hours of new video per minute. He profiles some of YouTube's homegrown stars and explores the tension between the company's financial interest in promoting viral content and the harm that can come from posting videos that promote hatred or propagate misinformation. Bergen's book is Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. You know, one of the things that happens when you run (laughs) a video sharing service the size of of YouTube's is that you can't possibly kind of – you know, curate it all individually. And so they rely on mathematical algorithms to do so much of the works, to filter out, you know, pornography and things like that. And um, often what will happen is that they will, you know, make a tweak or something and then it'll change things and affect affect users um, and creators. And I thought we would listen to a clip here. This is from another huge – YouTube star, uh, a guy who goes by the name of PewDiePie. He's actually a, a Swedish guy named Felix Shelberg, right? Um, um, got his start by, by videos of him just playing video games and commenting on them. Um, this is one a little later. I thought we would give a listen. This is uh, PewDiePie uh, airing some complaints, uh, complaints about YouTube. Hey, YouTube. It's time for me to complain about YouTube again. I, 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 I know. Can someone just stop YouTube from their self? I feel like YouTube is like a toddler playing with knives and you, let's just, let's just take the knife away from that baby. Stop, stop doing, stop. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably don't know what I'm talking about because it doesn't affect you in any way possible. So literally you can click away the video right now. I mean, no, it matters, damn it. I don't know if you noticed this. This has been a problem for a very long time. Number one, YouTube unsubbing you from a channel, even though you didn't. <laughs> that is PewDiePie, one of the best-known um, creators for YouTube. Our guest is Mark Berg, and his new book about YouTube is "Like, Comment, Subscribe." You know what he's referring to here. What he's talking about YouTube unsubbing you is that he's saying it, it unsubscribes someone, you know, arbitrarily from a channel that they're subscribed to. And I guess what he's getting at is, is the fact that. YouTube will, would make changes unannounced in its algorithm, which would really affect content creators, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this happened uh, 
throughout the history of YouTube, right, the ground is constantly shifting beneath the feet of even. So at this point, PewDiePie was the biggest star on on the platform and had been for several years. Yeah, he had more subscribers than than any other channel, and that's sort of the the currency. Uh, uh, on YouTube and and certain was was earning earning millions and there was this crunch around around 2015 and in 2016 that a lot of YouTube creators felt uh, and so this was a, actually a glitch the company had where around around a subscriber feature and in my reporting I find out that the company just didn't tell didn't communicate with creators about this um, they have made a, a fairly significant strides in communicating communicating with their their creator class, but it still remains. You know, there are over two million people uh, right now with channels that YouTube shares ad revenue with, which is this. It's a sprawling kind of gig economy of people that make money from YouTube but don't work for the company, um, don't have any healthcare from the company, right, and don't have any guarantees. And often the only communication they'll get is an automated email. Wow. Let's just let's just reemphasize that two million people are are creating content uh, and have channels on YouTube, and and some some have made millions, and others struggle. I mean, and I guess we should we should explain the, the kind of the undergirding principle here, which is that if advertisers put ad- advertising on the videos that you submit, you keep fifty five percent of the ad revenue, and YouTube keeps forty five percent. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Which, which is, um, you know, no company has been able to replicate that. Uh, there, so um, Hank and, and John Green uh, have been are, are uh, very popular YouTubers who've been on since since two thousand seven. Uh, John Green is also a prolific young adult um, a book author, and they've talked about this a lot recently because you know TikTok is is now starting to to pay creators in a, in a slightly different way and. Um, you know, Hank and John are among many creators that say that, you know, YouTube is still the place, still the gold standard uh, where you can actually make dependable income and have build a career and a business off of. And I think that's that's pretty remarkable that that clearly has had a lot of bumps uh, in, the, in the past 17 years. But, you know, there are certainly a lot of companies trying to chase that right now. Right. And there are times when, like, uh, you know, YouTube adjusts its algorithm to filter out pornography and and suddenly people who have bodybuilding videos are, are cut off right and and these things happen a lot and and it, and it has sometimes catastrophic effects on on people who are counting on this for a living uh, it, it it had a very catastrophic effect on the company uh the one chapter in the book talks about this tragedy where uh, a disgruntled youtuber shortly after youtube made a change to make it harder to make money online. Uh, a very troubled woman uh, brought a gun to its campus in San Bruno, California. Uh, th- thankfully, no one, w- no one was killed uh, but, but the shooter. Uh, so this, you know, for people at YouTube, that was a, clearly a moment when they, you know, they realized. And I think what separates YouTube from a lot of its peers is you know, every decision they make not only impacts y- you and me as a viewer, but it impacts literally millions of people whose livelihoods are often uh, reliant on on this company and platform and, and the decisions it makes. So you can, you know, you can have your your, your channel limited in a way for some for something you don't understand. You write that that many creators complain. That is to say, many people who create content for YouTube complained of burnout from the platform's unending. Demands and that kind of sounds confusing. If in fact you know the deal is you can upload whatever you want to, what are the what are the demands? What are we talking about? 
Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, people at YouTube talk about this as sort of, uh, in, in television, there's a set schedule. I know that I'm on a, a TV shoot for a certain number of months, and then I'm off, right, or a movie. Uh, you're, you're working on a movie for, for a set number of months. YouTube doesn't have that, right? The cadence and the expectation is uh, and, and constant, right? Then this is like, it, it, it is a very profound in part because it's kind of unspoken. Like there was no one at YouTube uh, telling creators you must publish every single video every single day. And in fact, YouTube's more recently told them you can you know, look at our data. If you if you take a break, it doesn't actually harm your audience. Uh, but there's certainly you know a lot of the most successful YouTubers are uh, incredibly astute and, and study the dash. They study the numbers. They study their uh, the metrics, and they can see that you know people that t- tend to produce on a more regular output uh, tend to get a, a better chance of being distributed, have better audience, right? Have better um, financial success, and that has had led. And I, I talk about there's one creator that um, I talk about in the book, Ingrid Nilsson, who was a star, early star um, in the beauty category, and really a trailblazer in this um, industry and uh, this sort of, uh, creative. It's both kind of creative and informative, and it transformed the fashion industry. Uh, she she left YouTube um, after about a decade, and it's there's there's been several largely women that have have left um, in, in part just because it's it doesn't you know it's a profession without a cl- a clear um, end path, and, and it's one that um, you know that it is sort of this constant need to be continuing to grow. Uh, and continuing to to, to produce. You know, Ingrid Nielsen is one who, she, she made a lot of money on this. And the weird thing about this is that the, the notion that you have to produce content very frequently seems at odds to me with the idea that you need to make content that's really arresting to watch. I mean, I would think if you take a little more time, you get something that people are willing to stick with. I mean, I, I looked at an Ingrid Nilsson video where she takes a shower. She has a bathing suit on, so it's not, you know, nothing inappropriate. But she's explaining what she does when she washes her hair. And she has this product, and then she starts, you know, massaging at the top and lets it go down. And then she has this conditioner. And I, I, kind of amazing to me that that would get a huge following. But it does, doesn't it? Yeah. There's something that the term in academia, and forgive me for this, but a parasocial network is sort of, I think, what, what you could call YouTube. And it, the idea is that there are people uh, who watch um, these creators and influencers and feel as if they know them personally, despite never having met them and not knowing them personally. Um, and that's a profound uh just relationship that I think is is not really understood, and it it uh, YouTube was the set the course. That was sort of the first major uh, social media platform to do so. And now a lot of our social the direction of social media is moving in that way. I mean, if people use Instagram, you realize that it's less and less of your friends and acquaintances and family, and more of say a, an influencer you've never met who makes a compelling video. Um, and that is the way that a lot of these. Tech platforms are moving. It is. Uh, it's an emotional burden. To, I talked to, to creators to to kind of per- constantly perform a life on screen. Mark Bergen, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mark Bergen writes for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Business Week. His new book is Like, Comment, Subscribe: Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. 
Coming up, Kevin Whitehead tells us about some musicians from the 70s that combined free jazz and electric funk and are at it again with a new album. This is Fresh Air. In the 1970s, influential musicians such as Ornette Coleman began combining free jazz and electric funk. Three notable vets of free funk bands periodically team up to get reacquainted. Vernon Reed, Jamala Dean Takuma, and Grant Calvin Weston call themselves free-form funky freaks. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead likes their attitude. album by the trio Freeform Funky Freaks is called Hymn of the Third Galaxy. The title shouts out to Chick Corea and Return to Forever's jazz rock classic Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy from 1973. That said, the Funky Freaks came up playing the post-Korea jazz rock style known as Free Funk, music with fewer complicated melodies and a little more earthy grooving. players helped shape the free funk style. Bass guitarist Jamaladeen Takuma played in Ornette Coleman's jittery electric band Primetime. Drummer Grant Calvin Weston backed spiky guitarist James Blood Omer. Vernon Reed played guitar in Ronald Shannon Jackson's great 80s unit Decoding Society. Reed also founded New York's premier black rock band Living Color and he still brings that in-your-face lead guitar energy. Freeform Funky Freaks. That's freaks with a Q, like in frequencies. As the name implies, they're heedless of category, blending jazz, funk, R&B, rock, and a little space music. Their tune, Norma Arm, grabs a catchy guitar lick from the New Orleans funk classic Sissy Strut by The Meters.
Shimaldin Takuma's bass bumps and Grant Calvin Weston's clean, big beat drumming do their own push-pull dance behind the guitarist. It makes for lively rhythmic crosstalk. Vernon Reed plays plenty of big arena guitar here. A blues reigns him in, for a minute anyway. With the blues, you want to put some feeling and meaning into it. Those old string bender licks sound more stressed than usual. few top jazz guitarists demonstrate their restraint and good taste on record. So it's bracing to hear Vernon Reed crank it up to 11 and wail so often on the album Hymn of the Third Galaxy. The road of excess doesn't always lead to the palace of wisdom, but it might pass through some colorful territory, out there beyond the boundary lines, where freeform funky freaks camp out. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film. And he writes for Point of Departure and The Audio Beat. He reviewed Hymn of the Third Galaxy by Freeform Funky Freaks. Coming up, John Powers reviews the new Showtime series based on the 1980s film American Gigolo. This is Fresh Air. One of the raciest and glossiest films of the 1980s was American Gigolo, which starred Richard Gere as a high-end male escort in Los Angeles. This weekend, Showtime is releasing a new TV series based on that famous movie, a daring project that has many wondering if it's a good idea. Our critic at large, John Powers, rushed to see the first three episodes. He says they aren't at all what he expected. When I was growing up, Remakes, sequels, and prequels were considered slightly dodgy. Either a money grab or an admission that one didn't have the chops to be original. These days, they're what the world seems to embrace, be it Top Gun Maverick, House of the Dragon, or Better Call Saul. The latest case is the Showtime series American Gigolo. It's a sequel to Paul Schrader's hit 1980 movie, which starred Richard Gere's Julian Kay a high-end L.A. escort who gets framed for murder, only to be redeemed by the love of a good woman, played by Lauren Hutton. As it mixed potboiler material with ideas of religious transcendence, the film was often silly. But it was also memorable. Bristling with expensive production-designed immorality, it offered the pounding beat of Blondie performing Call Me, the image of Julian's closet bursting with Armani clothing. The movie helped launch that brand in America and the sight of gear dishing up the first full-frontal nude scene by a male star in a studio film. American Gigolo was one of those Hollywood classics that became mythic without being particularly good. Aside from its title, there's nothing remotely mythic about the new series, which transfers Julian's story into the 21st century. Where Schrader created a deliberately opaque metaphorical fantasy, the show's creator, David Hollander, takes a more literal-minded approach. He fiddles with the original plot, 
treating in highfalutin glitz for explanatory backstory and a conventional murder mystery. The action begins when Julian, now played by the excellent actor John Bernthal, is exonerated for a murder he didn't commit and gets released from prison after 15 years. Wiser and worn, Julian doesn't want to return to his slinky old life. He wants to live clean, though he's also eager to find out who set him up for the murder. This means getting back in touch with people from his gigolo days. His handler, Olga, who got him into the business, his escort pal, Lorenzo, and his old lover, Michelle Stratton. That's Gretchen Moll in the Hutton role, whose son is heading into serious trouble. Predictably, Julian's return stirs things up. Soon there's another murder, and before he knows it, a police detective, oddly played by Rosie O'Donnell, looks eager to pin it on him. Nobody seems willing to help Julian, including his old flame, Michelle. Here he goes to her fancy house to see her and make sure that she knows he's never killed anyone. I wanted you to know that I didn't hurt that girl, Belle. You were right. You can't be here. I know. I, I understand. I have a son. Hey. Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That, what's his name? Colin. <laughs> He's in a lot of trouble. You being here will only make it worse. When I heard that they were turning American Gigolo into a series, I was curious but dubious. Schrader himself has called the project a terrible idea, but no matter. He doesn't own the rights to the characters. Now, in France, artists are protected by the so-called droit moral, or moral right, which means that you can't take their creations and do with them what you will. But this is America, so the series was made anyway, taking Julian Kay's story in a direction that Schrader, a complicated, genuinely fascinating man, would surely find banal. Even as Julian's backstory involves a strange abuse narrative, the show shot through with a startling misogyny, he himself becomes muted. Where Gear exuded a smug plasticine perfection, he came from seemingly nowhere like a sexy android, Bernthal's weathered Julian is weighed down by regrets and confusion. He has none of the pop zing that made Julian a cultural touchstone. One reason American Gigolo resonated in 1980 was that Schrader caught the direction of American culture before most people did. Indeed, the film's rapt attention to money, consumerism, and spiritual emptiness made it the first of many Reagan-era morality plays, one that actually came out nine months before Reagan was even elected. It remains an emblem of its time. I can't imagine that this will happen with the TV series, which relies too much on people knowing and caring about a movie that was made four decades ago. Then again, maybe this new American gigolo does capture our current American mood. It's the story of a once cocksure man who now wears T-shirts and drives a borrowed convertible he can't begin to afford. As Julian looks back on his often glittering past, he wonders exactly what happened to his life and how it all went wrong. John Powers reviewed the new Showtime series, American Gigolo.
Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Come on!